Hey, everybody. Kevin Grossman, president of Talent Board and the Candidate Experience Awards. Our 2022 Candidate Experience Benchmark Research Program is now open, and your organization can start benchmarking your candidate experience today. There's no deadline to start, just to finish, and that deadline is August 31st, 2022. But if you start now, you can do continuous feedback with your candidates in our benchmarking program till the deadline. To learn more and register, go to thetalentboard.org. Now, enjoy the podcast. Significant area of changes in this last fiscal year was that the EEOC spent uh, a good chunk of its time dismantling some of the priorities from the previous administration, which is not uncommon, but the speed at which it happened was fairly dramatic. You're listening to the Candy Shop Talk podcast brought to you by Talent Board and the Candidate Experience Awards Benchmark Research and hosted by Kevin W. Grossman. Talent Board is the first nonprofit research organization focused on elevating and promoting a quality candidate experience. The Candy Shop Talk podcast welcomes back Chris DeGroff, Matt Gagnon, and Jerry Matman, law partners at Safarth Shaw, as they discuss their latest annual report on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's legal enforcement and court rulings. Listen in on how improving candidate experience impacts recruiting and the business bottom line. Chris, Jerry, and Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the Candy Shop Talk podcast again this year. We had this conversation last year based on the report that we're going to be talking about, and I'm really excited to kind of dive into this, what you found um, this last year in 2021 as well. Now, you're all attorneys at the law firm Safarth, so before we dive into the rest of the show, why don't you briefly each tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do today, and Matt, let's start with you. Oh, thank you. I am a partner in uh, Cypress Shaw's Chicago office. I do primarily class and collective action litigation, uh, always on the defense side. Um, And that can be any variety of legal claims brought against employers, wage and hour type claims, discrimination claims like we're going to talk about today, and and other things. You never know what will come up. Just that little world of law, right? That's right. (laughs) There we go. Right. So, Chris, what about you? I've been with Cypher Shaw for about 25 years. Um, I was with a smaller boutique firm before that. Um, my office is here in Chicago, uh, but I have cases all over the country, like Matt, they're systemic matters or uh, class cases. Um, I focus primarily on government-initiated actions, including EEOC cases. I am the co-chair of the firm's complex discrimination litigation practice group, and I also chair the Chicago office's labor and employment department. All things, the most glamorous things in HR and in the world. <laughs> Right. All, absolutely. And Jerry, last but not least, tell us about you. I've been a lawyer for 40 years. I'm a partner in both the Chicago and New York offices of Cypress Shaw. Um, I chair our class action defense group, and I typically am defending uh, large lawsuits brought against employers over uh, their treatment, hiring uh, of workers, uh, many of which involve EEOC lawsuits throughout the United States. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, thanks again for, for doing this with me. So gentlemen, we all talked last year about your annual report on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, the legal enforcement and court rulings entitled EEOC Initiated Litigation. And your team states that in 2021, it was another great year of change at the commission, especially due to the continued impact, obviously, of the pandemic, uh, as well as the new administration at the helm. But 
one where it was possible to discern a new direction for the agency. So who is going to tell me what that means? I could kick us off on that. Interestingly, one of the significant area of changes uh, in this last fiscal year was that the EEOC spent uh, a good chunk of its time dismantling some of the priorities from the previous administration, which is not uncommon, but uh, the speed at which it happened was fairly dramatic. Um, I can give you an example of that. Yeah, give us an example or two of what, what you mean by that. Sure. In the previous administration, under the Trump administration, the former chair, uh, Chair Dillon, developed a new set of rules around conciliation. Conciliation is the informal process of resolving these matters before you go to federal court. And frankly, it was uh, sort of the, the whole basis for the EEOC in the first place was to create a buffer between the new uh, civil rights statutes and the federal courthouse. They thought that it was going to get overwhelmed. So over the years, there have been a certain amount of success with conciliation, but not at the rate that uh, the EEOC was hoping. So Chair former Chair Dillon developed a new set of conciliation rules that were designed to create some more transparency in the process where the EOC would provide more information and uh, had more established timelines, that sort of thing. Those went into effect just on the heels of the switchover uh, to the Biden administration in February, but by May, they'd already been taken apart. Again, this is obviously, as I joked with you before we started, above my pay grade, but more transparency is a good thing in these matters. So why why was it dismantled so quickly? It created considerable more burden on the field staff. They had to uh, actually put in writing a lot of the facts uh, that supported uh, their positions. They had to provide even witness names, actual dollar amounts of what they were asking for. So these are things that the EOC wanted to have a lot more flexibility. It had historically had almost entire flexibility on in that area. And with the Biden administration coming back in and with the new chair, we saw that getting all taken apart. Now, thank you for commenting on that. I don't know, Matt or Jerry, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that? or? Yeah, I, I think change is how one views their position. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so government agencies don't change on a dime after an election. It took a while and the Biden administration is still installing its advocates, its champions, its people in positions of authority. And in 2021, they are were beginning to flex their muscles, beginning to impact policies. So if you're an employer, the big change is there's a new sheriff in town, more aligned with labor and with workers, more uh, in tune with effectuating the public policy behind anti-discrimination laws by enforcing them in an aggressive fashion. And dealing with the EOC is a little bit like litigating with a tiger. You hold the tiger by the tail. The incentives that the government has when it brings lawsuits are very different than private attorneys that get a third of any settlement. The government attorneys are looking to create precedent to uh, create uh, injunctive relief rules, things that will detour wrongdoing, either industry by suing an industry leader or suing over an important issue. So you're starting to see the pressing of the legal envelope in a way that never occurred over the last five or six years in the past administration. So 
if 2021 was the beginning of the change, I think 2022, we're going to be up to our necks in that change. Right. That's what I, well, and I figured that's where it was going to based on what I, what I read and, and uh, what we wanted to talk about today too. And that, but that all, I mean, there's obviously since the inception of the EEOC there, I mean, every administration does impact obviously a lot of government agencies like this. Right. And everybody wants to wield their power and how what they see fit in the best agenda for especially in the in the world of work and for organizations and employers of all shapes and sizes let's talk about some of the highlights from your latest report so the things that popped out at me because obviously our audience focuses a lot on recruiting and hiring and even retention in the workplace today eliminating barriers in recruiting recruitment and hiring so last year saw a number of judicial decisions involving the eoc's attempts to combat discrimination and hiring practices right so particularly discrimination against women including the use of pre-employment screening tests so who wants to expound on this one for us i'll take a quick stab at it if you don't mind i think that what was interesting about this year in in this regard is that it was a little bit of a back to the future kind of thing uh, these pre-employment screening tests especially when you're talking about are you quoting the movie back to the future Matt? <laughs> is that what you're referencing right now i love it no i love it so okay um, go ahead uh, you know, these are the, the, these t- these types of, especially these physical abilities tests. I mean, these are the types of discrimination cases the EEOC was bringing back in the 70s and 80s, back when Back to the Future was a thing. And so it was kind of interesting to see that. And it was almost like sort of a return to basics. Uh, and maybe that was the thrust of the last administration's picks. And, um, you know, it took two and a half to three years for them to get their leadership in place. And so I do want to emphasize sort of the whiplash effect of the changes. We had it's kind of a long period of time in the beginning of the Trump administration. We thought, okay, changes are definitely going to happen. They're going to happen soon. Took surprisingly long time, but when they started happening, it was a really big deal. They tried to do a lot and they tried to squeeze it all into about six months. Uh, and then, of course, new administration comes in and they're now trying to reverse it just as fast. So I do think that when you're talking about barriers to recruitment and hiring in the future, if you wanted to not take this sort of back to the future, look back approach, but forward looking approach, to me, it's all going to be about AI screening tools. I think that's what employers have to worry about. I would I totally agree with that. And definitely something that is, is, is impacting recruiting and hiring a lot more today and a lot of organizations. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, unfortunately, there are really some good solution providers out there that are trying, that are working on standards and, and being ethical and, and how it's applied to recruiting and hiring. But I think we're going to see a lot more kind of legal precedents occur in the, in the years to come. I'm curious, is that something that, I mean, you know, it's 2022 for God's sake, right? And I just, when I think about employers and if they're, if this, I know discrimination still exists today, but especially as it relates to the things that you were just referencing, pre-employment screening tests, maybe it's related to AI now too, and how that applies to matching and screening and hiring. But um, is that something that we've seen a a resurgence in cases then that the EEOC is is handling? I, I think it's a sign of the times in terms of the economic turbulence of coming through the pandemic opening up avenues for people to land on their feet and get jobs has been a traditional favorite area of the EOC because it's motherhood, apple pie, and consistent with the public policy of the laws that everyone should have an equal chance to get a job. So vulnerable workers, eliminating barriers to finding jobs, especially in an economy where landing a job and getting a paycheck is so important 
common sense would dictate that that is where a huge spend of the EEOC's dollar is going to end up. That was certainly true in 2021 during the pandemic. If I could just also tag in on that, the reason the EEOC is interested in these or is so interested in these is because these are cases that are not always attractive to the private plaintiff's bar. It's difficult to find the alleged victims. Uh, There's a lot of upfront costs in pursuing them. A lot of times they require experts. Uh, The EEOC in the last four or five years has really become more adept at these. They have a lot more internal resources. Uh, So I think there's an intersection between feeling that they need to vindicate these uh, individuals' rights and being better uh, at pursuing these cases, along with all the things that Jerry and Matt mentioned as well. Right. And to create, hopefully, a a continued fair employment environment for any individual at any organization, public, private, you name it at the end of the day. But the thing that that you think about what's happened the past two and a half years, and I know some of these things that have been breaking down in in employment, and and again, not from a legal standpoint, but just from the standpoint of individuals wanting better wages and benefits and and the, the super accelerator of the pandemic really kind of, you know, millions of people that have left their jobs and are moving to new jobs are not going back to work because they're still stuck in this pandemic existential loop. I mean, the list goes on. And when you referenced, you said at the end of the Trump administration, because it wasn't it true, too, that there was pretty much a skeleton crew in the Trump administration for the first couple of years, too, right? Across agencies. Isn't that true? I mean, and so is that why it uh, suddenly they, they were fully staffed and it accelerated then? Well, it's true that, but I think as an outsider looking in on what was going on, one of the ways in which Trump and his administration controlled the bureaucracy was to starve it, not fund it, and not fill positions. And so the EEOC with a smaller budget, smaller group of people, much harder to carry out its business. Uh, and so he took his time and just let many offices be vacant on the theory that that's the best way to gum up the works and to stop the enforcement. So I think that you're now seeing the EOC getting back to its levels, getting a budget increase, appointing more and hiring more investigators and attorneys and beginning to spend the taxpayer dollars to effectuate what they view as the public policy of equal employment opportunity. And why we'll probably see we're playing catch up too, right? They're playing catch up to a, to a certain degree too. So another highlight, and you touched on this a little bit, Jerry, too, was when we're talking about protecting vulnerable workers and the EEOC was going to focus more on, on job segregation, harassment, trafficking, pay, retaliation, and other policies and practices against vulnerable workers, including immigrants and migrant workers, as well as persons perceived to be members of these groups and against members of underserved communities. How is that going to play out in the next, you know, the, the 2022 and the years to come? Yeah, you're going to see lawsuits brought by the government that private lawyers wouldn't fund or get involved in, and a lot of taxpayer dollars going into those lawsuits to create their form of justice in terms of court rulings that would deter others due to precedence and large uh, cash settlements that would send a message that unless you change your ways, corporate America in these areas, we're going to continue to sue you. And so because it can only file so many lawsuits and has not an unlimited budget, but a a budget where it has to wisely spend its dollars. It's trying to send messages by saying that you don't want to be a company that's sued by us, the EEOC, and to have what's happened to your neighbor in terms of them being in our 
gun sites happen to you. And I think that the EEOC is a very formidable opponent, very, very aggressive. No right-minded employer is waking up every morning saying, no problem, sue me. Don't want to be sued. <laughs> exactly right. No. Um, how, and I I think I this I might already know the answer to a big part of this, because I know the Supreme Court just shot down the vaccine mandate, but how, how does that... And will that play, uh, uh, the, the, I know it's super complex with what's gone on and as it relates to the pandemic and encouraging private employers and, and, and just and federal employees themselves having to be vaccinated. Is that going to impact any of these things that, that you that you highlighted in your report? And was that discussed at all? Yeah, I, I can jump in on that one. I think that thus far with the, remember the Commission still is a majority Republican agency and will be until uh, the summer or beyond, depending on the confirmation process. At least the uh, commission in its current composition um, hasn't pushed on the litigation side of things to enforce COVID-related initiatives. The idea has been more in terms of guidance. Now, that might change. That might change as some of the charges start to ripen. And when we see a changeover in the composition of the commission itself, it might move more towards a litigation posture. There's things that we don't know yet what may happen, right? I mean, we can't, you know, talk about going back to the future and what we thought in Marty McFly's world, what 2015 looked like compared to 2022 today. Yikes. So so we, we may see some legal impacts and obviously in years and years to come too. We're not out of the pandemic yet. We're still in the pandemic right now. Uh, I could connect that to a larger theme that also fits within this uh, rubric of uh, vulnerable workers. One is you know, who defines who are the vulnerable workers? And that can change with the changeover in leadership and administration. What I'm looking forward to and what I think is on the horizon is a potential clash between uh, the LGBT rights that were enshrined by the recent Supreme Court decision in Bostock and how those are going to be interpreted by some employees um, as perhaps an infringement on their religious freedoms. And this is where that connects with the vaccine issue as well, because a lot of the employers, a lot of employers have put in place mandatory vaccine policies. And so employers have been left scrambling to try to figure out, well, at what point does this infringe on somebody's rights to religious freedom or other, you know, however they might interpret that. Um, and so I think that that's kind of an interesting connection because Chris is right. Haven't seen a lot of that litigation yet. I do think it's coming and it's going to touch directly on that religious rights issue. I completely agree with you. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. My head just exploded thinking about some of those things that might happen. Jerry, did you want to add something to that? I was going to add that the recent Supreme Court decisions on um, vaccines have underscored the notion that health and safety concerns doesn't trump all. And what we're seeing an underlying issue in the case law is someone's religious rights someone's alleged disability has to be accommodated, it has to be addressed, and an across-the-board blanket policy just in the name of health and safety can't override the individual rights that workers have under these laws that the EEOC enforces. And so you see kind of situations where the EEOC is bringing lawsuits and you might scratch your head and say, why are you doing that? And that's because of the primacy of those rights and the importance of those rights, even balanced against something that impacts society in such a 
profound way as uh, safety in the COVID pandemic. And I think that's where a lot of it's been so politicized and so um, everybody from employees to CEOs to everybody involved in this, we've been extremely reactive too. Do you, I'm just out of curiosity, even any recent precedent has there been legally when it comes to a health crisis like this? I mean, I'm going back to, I don't even know if during the, the SARS crisis or during AIDS or do we have, I mean, how, is there anything like that that's the that's impacted um, EOC? And I'm just curious, because that's not a history that I know very well. I can say anecdotally, sort of on a more microcosmic scale, we've seen cases, large scale cases brought by the EEOC where the individual rights, the way that Jerry was mentioning, have in the EEOC's mind trumped public safety issues. And it comes up a lot in the ADA environment where they view folks in the trucking industry and the rail industry are individuals that have safety sensitive positions and they don't want to have uh, individuals in those positions that are compromised in any way. And that balance between an ADA request for accommodation uh, on one hand and public safety in terms of who's driving your trucks or your trains uh, on the other. And the EEOC has shown that it is been more than willing to uh, take on those industries and put the individual rights first. So while I don't know of any large scale precedent that is anywhere near, near that. <laughs> the, right. the COVID near crisis, right, right. The, the underlying theories have been advocated by the EOC day in, day out, year in, year out. There's one other very interesting dynamic to the pandemic. And uh, prior to the pandemic, it was pretty much hornbook law that all law students and people would learn that when you're talking about disability discrimination, a requirement that you work at the office was an essential function of the job and an employer could impose that. And having people were telecommute, work part-time, was an imposition on a business. Then lo and behold, uh, American business has to pivot when the pandemic occurs and a majority of people are working remotely. And so query in the future when these cases come up, how judges are going to react to the argument of I need you to be at the office because everyone has demonstrated that the work of business can get done with people not necessarily being in the office. So I think there's going to be a rethinking and a re-argument of those ADA line of cases about just what is an essential requirement of the job and is one of them physical presence at an office. And my sense is it won't be anymore. I would agree with you on that. I mean, I think we've already seen that uh, happening and we've seen individuals who have left their jobs because of the lack of flexibility or companies that have started to pull back the, the tide on that one going, yeah, now it's time to go back. Now it's time to go back to the office. So, But I think we're going to see, that's interesting. It'll be The next few years are going to be fascinating in what we've seen, the impact, again, on employment, world of work, and what the EEOC will, may or may not do. The last thing I wanted to, to touch on is there's more states now that are enacting tra- pay transparency laws. They have to companies have to post what the salary is for, for for positions, and that's a double-edged sword for a lot of employers. And, and it always has been. We're our organization and the research that we do and employers that we work with, we're always advocates of more transparency when it comes to recruiting and hiring. But the fact of that, that the EEOC has stressed that it will focus on compensation systems and practices that discriminate on a, on any protected basis, such as race, ethnicity, age, individuals with disabilities that we were just kind of touching on. What should we expect this year as it relates to that? I know we're going to probably see more states enacting these pay transparency laws, don't you think? Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. 
quickly. I mean, it's already been a trend that has developed incredibly rapidly. Colorado was way out in front on that issue, but more and more states, it seems like every day are following suit. And it, um, it, it is, it's about transparency. Yes, that's true. But there's an issue there of, you know, a lot of information may be good, but a little bit of information maybe isn't so good. Maybe it's a little dangerous because it can be taken out of context. And, in, and especially when you're talking about equal pay litigation, context is everything. How do you compare one person to another person? You got to look at all the, the details. So just abstracting away from those details, I think, could give rise to some lawsuits that maybe should not have been brought. Some more frivolity in that regard. I'm interesting. Yeah, I, and probably for, foresee that happening. Jerry or, Matt or Chris, did you want to co- add anything to that? I, I would look for legislative proposals to expand. Uh, and I think that uh, things that would be done to uh, on a pro-labor, pro-worker agenda across the board are very popular now. Everything swings like a pendulum, and it's going to take a while to swing back. But I think you've put your finger on the pulse of an area very important to uh, advocates. You know, this notion of the CEO making 165 times what the hourly worker makes. So I think that pay transparency is gaining uh, credence and is going to become much more important in the next few years. Yeah. And, and I agree, Matt, about context. I think that's going to be super, super important as we go forward with that. As we wind down now, and thanks again, gentlemen, it's always a fascinating conversation. What what else is, what else, you know, for our audience, which again, HR and recruiting leaders and their teams primarily, and other business folk too, that are, that are responsible for, or um, that recruiting hires is important too. What else from the latest report do you want to point out that we did not talk about? One thing I would highlight, uh, if we were going to talk about what we could see in the the coming year, I I think that it can be described in one word, and that's just more. With the EEOC staffing up, as Jerry was mentioning, you have more resources at its disposal. And we talked a little bit about the the composition of the commission. But if if you look at uh, early in our our book, we talk about some of the, the voting trends of the current commissioners. Um, I think it's in the first five to 10 pages of the the report. If you look at it, every single case that has come before the commission, a Democrat has voted for. Um, It's the Republicans that go uh, back and forth with uh, Commissioner Lucas as sort of being the, the pivot there. Now, imagine... Fast forward to Q3, Q4 of this year, when you now have a Democratic majority, I think we're going to see a huge spike in the number of cases brought by by the EEOC, and it's going to try to effectuate its agenda through litigation. I think the advice I would give is, while in the past, a safe assumption would be no one's watching or maybe they don't care, I think the more appropriate assumption now is you better make sure the way in which you behave and comply with the law is because more likely than not, the EEOC is watching. And if you are going 56 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour zone, you may have some issues. And so I think heightened regulation, heightened enforcement, heightened scrutiny are the watchwords of the day. Yeah, I would agree. Matt, you want to add anything? I think you've hit on all of the major themes uh, in terms of what to expect in the future, with the exception of maybe one, and that's sex harassment claims. There's There continue to be ever since the Me Too movement. They have been growing as a part of the EEOC's docket. Everything else now is sort of overshadowing it. It's still there. It's still a very important issue for the EEOC. Got it. 
That gentleman, thanks so much for sharing. I'm gonna, when I when this podcast goes live, I'll make sure to post where they folks can get the report. But where do they get the report? There's a link right off our website. If they just go to Cypher Shaw, it's cypher.com. It's all over the website. It's free. It's downloadable. It can be an ebook. They can have it on their laptop in a nanosecond. Excellent. Well, thank you, the three of you, for sure, and Scythe Rishaw for, for putting this report out again. Before we move on, you might remember this from last year. You know, we're always working all the time. We're always talking shop. We're always work, 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 work. What else does Matt, for starters, what else does Matt like to do? Uh, I remember this question from last year. So uh, it was at the time, height of the pandemic, and it was just projects that I could do with my young daughters. So I think at the time it was a Barbie swing set. Now we've We've progressed to like basic robotics. So uh, I, I will have uh, come out of the pandemic. Quite a jump, Matt. Yeah, no, I know. From things you know, to robotics. When you're six, anything is possible. I know, I agree. I've got two girls too, so I, I get you on that. They run the gamut as well. That's Thanks for sharing that. That's great. Chris, what about you? My answer is uh, very much the same as last year too. <laughs> with, with six kids, I'm into whatever they're into. I know more about TikTok than a grown man should. I'll just put it that way. I know, I don't, um, I don't want to know any more about that. No. <laughs> Sadly, Sadly, I know and have starred in at least one TikTok that I'm Oh, good for you. Um, That's fine. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that I'm sort of the Swiss, Swiss Army knife of my kids. Um, looking forward to having my own life someday. Uh, well, there you go. Well, someday, right, Chris? But, you know, we're, we, you're, you're a proud dad, though. I get it. Jerry, what about you? Uh, I'm focused on playing as much golf as I can possibly play. All right. There you um, go. Traveling to foreign countries and my hobby of uh, book writing. Oh, very nice. Excellent. Well, that is that is great. Thank you, gentlemen, again for sharing. And thanks for being on the Candy Shop Top Podcast. Again, very, uh, very informative. And it's going to be super important for everybody and our listeners to check this out and to check the report out, too. Thank you all again. All right. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Candy Shop Talk podcast. For more information about Talent Board and the Candidate Experience Awards and Benchmark Research, visit www.thetalentboard.org.